It's not that we each held the rope at a lynching. It's not that we're all putting on white robes and hoods, but it's not just what we do, it's what we don't do. It's not just what we say, it's what we don't say. And the idea of complicity is simply this, that it's too easy to point to the most extreme and overt acts of racism and say, well, that's other people. And since I'm not doing that, I'm not racist. I'm not part of the problem. What we actually have to do is say, how have I contributed to the problem by my lack of action, by my lack of speaking up or through my subtle actions and implicit attitudes. And that's been the vast majority, unfortunately, of the church, uh, particularly speaking of the white Christian church in the United States, uh, instead of courageously confronting racism, too often the response was compromising complicity. Welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. This week, we are honored to talk with Jamar Tisby, author of the book Color of Compromise, a book that discusses the complexity and complicity of the Christian church in America and the history of its relationship to race and racism. To be Black and Christian in America is a complex identity, one in which the unity we all could share in our common faith is divided by the active and passive responses to racial injustice. As one of my favorite quotes from the show iterates, We can't really talk about reconciliation unless we are at least first truthful about the history of, of race in America generally and racism in the church more specifically. This interview will be part of a larger docu-podcast project with the NAD that will speak to the history of race in the Adventist church. So please stay tuned for updates on this project. And for now, enjoy a tidbit of this conversation. You can follow our guest today, Jamar Tisby, on Twitter and Instagram at Jamar Tisby. I would highly recommend reading his book, The Color of Compromise, for a more in-depth look at this discussion. And you can pre-order his upcoming book, How to Fight Racism, for practical tools addressing racial injustice. We want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to find us at the handle at AdventNext. And you can follow me at Kendra Arsenault with an X. But right now, this is AdventNext. So in your book, you know, you discuss kind of, you discuss so many things. I don't know how much time we're going to have to get to a lot of these questions, but you specifically, you know, it's called the color of compromise and you discuss, you know, complicity in the church and that in the history of kind of white evangelicalism, you know, people who are not necessarily, there were people who were overtly racist. You talk about kind of the history of the KKK and that formation, but even those who were not particularly involved in something so overt, there was still this issue of complicity and that racism happened in an environment of complicity. And so what does complicity in the church look like specifically, uh, just to give people a context of what that, what that might look like? So I opened the book, The Color of Compromise, with the tragic murder of four little black girls in the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama. That was September 15th, 1963. And in the wake of that tragedy, of course, everybody is decrying this act of racial terrorism, even staunch segregationists. You know, how could something like this happen, right? And then in, in um, shortly after that, there was a, a white lawyer named Charles Morgan Jr. who gave a speech to an all white men's business club gathering in, in Birmingham. And he asked them, who did it? 
who threw that bomb? And then he answered his own question and said, the answer should be, we all did it. Every last one of us. And then he went through this litany of the ways that the people he was speaking to and the white community broadly sort of co-signed racism in everyday ways, right? Uh, whether it was telling a, a, a joke about a racist joke and laughing at it, whether it was remaining silent in the midst of people who did. And uh, he also turned his attention to the church. He said, do your churches allow black people to become members? Uh, when a tragedy struck, did you come alongside your black brothers and sisters in Christ to, to be with them, to demonstrate solidarity? And what Charles Morgan Jr. was getting at, I think, was the concept of complicity and the idea that the most egregious acts of racism, like a church bombing, can only happen within the context of compromise. What a lot of people don't realize is that this was not the first church bombing in general. It wasn't even the first church bombing in Birmingham. There was already a nickname for the city, and it was called Bombingham. And there was a particular neighborhood called Dynamite Hill. And so this, is ha this has happened before. And what Charles Morgan Jr. Was, was trying to convey to his audience is that if we had not cooperated in the first instance, if, if, if something like this had happened and we'd had a strong enough response, perhaps we could have prevented this latest tragedy, but we didn't. And it's not that we each planted the dynamite. It's not that we each held the rope at a lynching. It's not that we're all putting on white robes and hoods, but it's not just what we do, it's what we don't do. Mm. It's not just what we say, it's what we don't say. And the idea of complicity is simply this, that it's too easy to point to the most extreme and overt acts of racism and say, well, that's other people. And since I'm not doing that, I'm not racist, I'm not part of the problem. What we actually have to do is say, how have I contributed to the problem by my lack of action, by my lack of speaking up, or through my subtle actions and implicit attitudes? And that's been the vast majority, unfortunately, of the church, uh, particularly speaking of the white Christian church in the United States. Uh, instead of courageously confronting racism, too often the response was compromising complicity. Wow. Wow. And I, I, I love that you're bringing this up because I think you know, that can be the rationale, you know, I didn't partake in this, but you're saying that a, a lack of action is a part of what creates an environment of complicity and allows these things to take place. And just kind of, you know, you also talk about the process of reconciliation and that without reconciliation, there cannot be, there cannot be reconciliation without a truth telling process. In your experience and in your studies, like how has the church tried to circumvent this process? Do you feel like we're very honest about our history? And if not, how do we get there? Let me tell you, this issue of truth is so relevant for understanding the past, but also in our present day. Um, I mean, there's just so many contemporary connections where, you know, this, this, this phrase fake news is mm -hmm. flying about. And it is given, it has given uh, people, including Christians, a cover to uh, believe conspiracy theories, misinformation, false information, etc. But it all revolves around this concept of truth. And I think theologically, Christians ought to stand out both past and present for their commitment to the truth. Because mm -hmm. in the Bible, um, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit 
of truth, the spirit who will lead us into all truth. And then Jesus himself calls himself, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And we understand there's a capital T truth that refers to the truth of the gospel, the good news that, that God has made a way to reconcile humanity to God's self, right? Um, through Jesus Christ. But there's also lowercase t truth, which is that which accords with reality. Uh, there's, a, there's a kind of truth that um, uh, is, is the opposite of uh, bearing false witness. It's a, it's a truthful witness. It's an authentic witness, right? And Christians ought to be known for that. And so even in contemporary issues, uh, truth is a, is a big deal. But historically, we've done a terrible job nationally and in the church of telling the truth about racism. Why? Because I think deep down, um, many white Christians realize that uh, they're complicit in it. If not personally, then by association with a denomination or a particular church, particular community. Why? Because people want to, if the status quo is working for you, you want to maintain the status quo. And if telling the truth about history somehow disrupts that, well, it doesn't, it doesn't work to your earthly advantage to talk about that. And just one more thing on truth. Um, yeah. You know, I, I live in the South, although the, this is true in lots of different places, but we have tons of Confederate monuments, right? Um, the Confederate monuments are not simply memorials to people who died fighting in the Civil War. Uh, they are, one inscription literally says this monument is dedicated to hero worship. Hmm. Um, they are talking about, uh, in other inscriptions, they talk about a just and holy cause, which of course, you know, was the cause of the Confederacy to preserve race-based chattel slavery. And so right. even our monuments and symbols are telling a mythology mm. about our racial past. And our churches, unfortunately, have so often contributed to that uh, false mythology. And so, yeah, we can't really talk about reconciliation unless we are at least first truthful about the history of, of race in America generally and racism in the church more specifically. Wow. I, I really love that you're touching on this. And it's so, it seems like the work of a prophet, right? To, to tell the truth. When you look at the Bible, you don't see mythology, right? You see these true stories of people's falls, the true story of some of the most atrocious acts. Like I'm sure if David had the choice, he would not have put in what was put in the scripture about his own life. But it's only through that process, like you're saying, of telling the truth about our history that we can move forward in a meaningful way, right? Um, I think that's true with any relationship. I don't know a single relationship where if something negative happens or, or there's a uh, there's a fight or there is some abuse that happens that how can we move forward without a person taking full responsibility for that and really open to that conversation? Do you know, I still hear in, in this um, uh, intersects with your comment about like sort of being in a relationship, um, still so many people who in response to racial injustice, past or present say, well, why do we have to keep talking about this? Can't we mm -hmm. just move on as if the solution is uh, talking less about a, an issue, uh, talking less about an injustice will somehow relieve that injustice when in fact the opposite is true. And as you demonstrate, you know, we know this in, in sort of interpersonal relationships, right? If, if, if a couple gets into a fight and your solution yeah. is 
pretend like it never happened. Well, that's actually not a solution at all. It's a festering wound that's going to crop up some way, shape, or form, oftentimes when you least expected it, and oftentimes in very sort of violent ways even. So um, the problem is not that we talk about race too much. It's that we don't talk about it enough. We have mm. not talked about it enough in the past nor in the present to really get to the point where we can actually move on to other things. It's true. And and I just want to say this last statement and ask some other questions, but I've been thinking about this in my, in my own personal life. I feel like the American dream in some ways is to be, and you know, take this with a grain of salt, I'm going to explain this, is, uh, is to be a white heterosexual male. Because in that context, you don't have to think about gender. You don't have to think about race. You don't have to think about your sexuality. You get to just pursue the dream, right? All of these other complexities and how you experience life is not in your experience. And so for someone to say, I don't want to talk about this, it's a privileged place. You don't have to talk about it because it doesn't affect you, but it doesn't mean that that's you know, that that's the right thing to do because so many other people are not in the same privileged place that you are. So kind of stepping back a little bit, you know, um, looking at the colonial era, you talk about in your book, like, this didn't have to be, right? The way that we have created these divisions across racial lines, particularly, um, you know, uh, when it comes to chattel slavery, and we said, okay, people of a darker hue are going to be cast into the system, but that never had to be. That race was still being constructed in the early period of this nation. And I was wondering if you could explore that a little bit. Right. So, I mean, from the perspective of the 21st century, when we've had so much history of racism and segregation and race-based chattel slavery, it, it, it almost feels inevitable, like, like this was bound to happen no matter what. It was um, just, you know, just written into stone. When, when the reality is, um, at many different points in history, uh, Christians could have chosen a different way. The country could have chosen a different way, could have chosen the way of a multiracial, inclusive democracy. Even today, <laughs> we're faced with that choice, right? Um, and so the idea is, is to say that, that none of this was inevitable, that it all depended on um, human choices and specific decisions, specific uh, priorities that, that were true. And uh, people could have prioritized differently and they could have made different decisions. And so for example, in the colonial era, in the year 1667, the Virginia Assembly passed a law regarding baptism. And they said that baptism would not emancipate an enslaved Native American, African American, or person of mixed race descent. That was to resolve a dispute with plantation owners and missionaries. Missionaries wanted to preach the gospel, not in really this egalitarian sort of way, but, you know, that was their job, was to spread. The, they wanted to make converts, but they really didn't have equality in mind anyway. Nevertheless, plantation owners were like, uh, if you start evangelizing enslaved people, they're going to get these wacky ideas about equality and liberation and freedom, and that's going to mess with our labor force and our bottom line. So the compromise, there's that word, was, well, we'll pass a law saying that missionaries can evangelize, they can convert, they can even baptize Christians or, or enslaved people. But even as they enter into the household of God, they will be considered from an earthly standpoint, second-class citizens in the household mm -hmm. of God. 
that was mm -hmm. a choice they didn't have to make. <laughs> they didn't have yeah. to make that law. They could have said to plantation owners and missionaries alike, if you preach the gospel, which was, by the way, the common law in England was that you could not enslave a fellow Christian. They could have simply carried over that tradition and said, well, they're either Christian and free or they're not Christian and enslaved, which was still not ideal, but it, you know, it would have been consistent with tradition and they could have made a different choice. Um, and so that's just one example from the very earliest days, right? And it, and it also demonstrates a couple of things. Number one, the chronology of it, right? So there's, there's, there's no period where America was so great that we didn't deal with these issues. Um, the other thing that it points to is that uh, uh, there's this blend of race, religion, and politics. And while we can distinguish between them, we can talk about them separately, they're, they're all integrally connected, race, religion, and politics, both mm. past and present. I, I love that point, and I would love for you to, to like tease us out a little bit because you talk a little bit about how Christianity, you know, made this distinction between physical freedom and spiritual freedom and kind of the interest that you're talking about. And I feel like it's carried over today where it's this whole, you know, preaching the gospel is a spiritual reality that we are to lay hold of in heaven, but not a physical reality that we take part of in this life. That's right. That's right. That, that, that was the sort of theological rationale that white Christians had to come up with to justify enslavement and second-class citizenship um, was that the Christian message was only about your, the, the, the status of your eternal soul, right? It was only about, um, you know, your personal piety and not doing bad things, right? It wasn't about broader systemic or institutional issues. It wasn't really even about physical and material issues, at least as they pertained to Black people and other people of color. Um, but what we need to realize, though, is that this is highly selective. So white Christians can be very political and very sort of earthly minded when they want to be. Um, but it depends on the issue. So white Christians were not hesitant uh, to protest uh, the so-called removal of prayer in schools or Bibles from schools, or of course a contemporary issue, uh, abortion and overturning Roe v. Wade as a, as a legal solution to what they see as a systemic issue, right? Um, so, so they can operate on those levels, but whenever it came to race, they said, oh, that's a, that's a social issue, or that's a civic issue, or that's a political issue, and therefore beyond the realm of the church to address. Wow. And I think you made some great examples. So it's, it's still happening today, then. This isn't something that we've, we've, caught, we've matured from. That's right. Yes, yeah, still wrestling with it. So, you know, as you describe kind of, uh, I think what's so interesting is that how the Bible was used on both sides of the slavery debate, right? There was evidence that they felt was pro-slavery and evidence that they felt was anti-slavery and that people used the Bible to justify their point of view. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think sometimes people feel like, you know, that they have the righteous ground because it's the biblical view, but both parties at this time thought that they did. That's right. That's right. I'm reminded of 
the book of Joshua, when Joshua encounters the angel of the Lord, and he says, um, are you are you for us or, or for our enemies? And the angel of the Lord answers, no, I'm the angel of the Lord. <laughs> so it's like, I'm on God's side, uh, not yeah. your side or the other side. But the the ways people attempted to justify their positions, I think, is is what I tried to highlight in the book. So Southern Christians characterize themselves as the true Bible believers, the ones who took God at God's word, and that scripture was infallible and literal and, and all of these things. And so the way they justified um, slavery, these pro-slavery theologians, was to say, show me chapter and verse where the Bible con condemns slavery. And if you can't do that, then slavery is not wrong. And so what are you talking about? abolitionists. And then they would go further and say, well, the Bible does talk about slavery. And it does. It talks a lot about slavery. Um, and it says uh, th these pro-slavery theologians were saying, well, all the Bible does is regulate slavery. So it's not saying slavery is wrong. It just says, do slavery this way. And as long as we're doing that, then we're okay. Of course, what they weren't taking into account was the fact that the Bible was written at that point, you know, 1800 years ago, that the context was the ancient Near East, that the particular manifestation of um, uh, labor and economic exploitation in, the, in, in what became the United States was race-based chattel slavery, which was an innovation compared to other forms of unfree labor that had been practiced globally throughout history. Um, but then they turned around and said to Northern Christians, because there were Christians who were abolitionists and Christians who were in the North, um, the, the way that they would try to, to make their argument was basically like, you know, you have to look at the whole thrust and scope of the Bible, which is toward liberation, toward equality, toward loving your neighbor, right? So the Bible doesn't have to explicitly condemn slavery for it to be considered bad. And there are, are places against man stealing and things of that nature usury, uh, even, I would say, um, uh, texts against greed and um, material, uh, you know, a lust for material goods would speak against race-based chattel slavery. But that argument was much more sort of theoretical, ethical in nature um, for a populace that was largely uneducated in the formal sense, many people still illiterate. The Southern pro-slavery argument made a lot more sense on its face. It was just easier to grasp, it was more concrete. Um, and so it was, I say in the book, you know, the Civil War was as much um, a battle over the fate of race-based chattel slavery as it was a battle over the Bible as well. Hmm. And do you think that, you know, uh, you know, what, what do you think are like some of the underlying issues for, you know, I think us now, sorry, us looking back, we can say, of course, the Bible doesn't justify slavery. But what are some of maybe like, and you don't really talk about this, uh, you, I mean, you, you touch on it. But like, what are some of like maybe the exegetical issues that are happening when people are not taking into consideration, like the cultural context and the time and you mentioned something about, you know, there's an ultimate ethic that the Bible is pointing towards and it's moving in a direction. Like what happens when we just take a text and we're like not really proving it and, and really trying to get a more robust understanding of what's happening in those passages? I think you know, a lot of things are happening. One is a, a, is a sort of myopic approach to exegesis and theologizing um, uh, that is 
heavily intellectual, heavily cerebral, um, looks at emotions and experiences as negative and not as ways to sort of inform one's exegesis, which of course it does, even if you think you're being completely objective, right? And that's what a lot of just white theologians in general think is that they're being completely objective. All we're doing is interpreting the Bible. All these other groups who want to bring in their racial and cultural experiences and insights and contextualize things, that's, that's, that's doing damage to the interpretation. But we are somehow extracted and separate from all of those influences and can view the Bible objectively and derive God's one single meaning and application, right? Um, mm. Another aspect of it is um, theological arrogance in the sense of European and white theologians considering themselves and being considered by others as the standard uh, in terms of biblical interpretation, which meant you didn't learn from the Black church tradition. You didn't learn from uh, the Latin American theological tradition. Uh, you couldn't learn from anyone who was not white. And so attempts even to Christianize historically um, have been also attempts to um, Anglicize, uh, attempts mm. to assimilate culturally people into a particular way of living that goes far beyond um, what what the Bible would would promote in terms of uh, you know we have Christian freedom in certain things. So um, I think there's a lot of exegetical issues going on, not least of which so so pro slavery theologians would have called um, Christian abolitionists liberal. Because and they would have said, well, you're not taking the word of God seriously, uh, because you know you're you're extrapolating all these anti-slavery ideas, and the Bible never says that. Uh, so that's mm. something we should certainly be wary of, even in our present day. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you bringing that out. Sometimes it seems like, well, the scriptures are just very plain, uh, but. What I'm learning, you know, as a seminary student and what I'm learning from, you know, what you brought out in your book and other texts is that, you know, you can't always just take a plain reading of the text. There has to be reason and understanding and, like you said, pulling from other cultural experiences to really be able to get a robust picture of what the Bible is saying. Otherwise, you know, we could use it to the harm of someone else. Please. One thing that I should highlight for folks is that whiteness thrives on invisibility. So the concept of race, the way it works is it makes people of color hyper visible in, in certain ways, but it makes white people's race and racialization invisible, at least to them. So the way a white theologian can do theology and think that they are just doing theology apart from any sort of cultural, historical, or personal experiences is a partly a function of um, being in the majority and thinking that your perspective and the way you do things is normative, is standard, is right, and that everything else is a deviation. And what happens is a white person doesn't see themselves as white. <laughs> they just see themselves as, a, as an individual. And, um, but they see everyone else with, as people of color and as groups. And so that is therefore other different 
marginal, even deficient. Um, and, and so one of the things that, that our white brothers and sisters need to do is realize that you have race too, <laughs> and that affects how you view and operate in the world. That was so well said. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, one thing I think was really interesting too, I mean, some people who might not be familiar with the history of things like the Ku Klux Klan, but you talk about how it was a religious order. And some people might say that's a stretch, you know, uh, especially from what we think about the KKK today, but is it a stretch? And what was the original kind of formation of this very overtly racist group? Yeah, no, it's not a stretch at all to say it was um, uh, a religious group. Um, I'll put it that way. Um, because, I mean, think of it this way. They weren't letting Jewish people in the Klan. They weren't letting Muslims in the Klan or Buddhists or even really atheists. Um, maybe you could get away with that if you didn't talk about it. But the assumption was, if you were eligible to be eligible for the clan essentially the assumption was that you were a white preferably anglo-saxon native um, native born citizen who um was christian now i would call it christian nationalism i wouldn't call it you know you can think of frederick Douglass. Uh, he writes in the appendix of one of his autobiographies that between uh, the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I see the widest possible difference. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he's speaking from the perspective of someone who was formerly enslaved and had to escape to uh, obtain his liberation. And he's saying that, you know, his cruelest slave masters were the ones who called themselves Christian. Wow. And as you sort of carry that idea forward into the Jim Crow era, uh, what you have is this melding of race, religion, and nationalism. And so we see, you know, most people have heard of the Ku Klux Klan. Many of us don't know that there were three major waves or three major iterations of the Klan. The first was right after the Civil War. The third was during the Civil Rights Movement to push back against Black civil rights. And the second was in many ways the most violent and widespread of the movements. That was birthed or rebirthed on Thanksgiving Day in 1915 when a former preacher, he was a former uh, Methodist circuit writer, uh, went to the top of Stone Mountain in Georgia, which on the front of it has Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, Jefferson Davis, all these Confederate icons. And they go up there and they do a couple of things. Number one, they burn a cross, which of mm -hmm. course becomes a symbol of racial terrorism in the Jim Crow era, but number two, they build an altar, and on that altar, they put two objects, a Bible and an American flag. Mm. And so if we sort of um, dissect the symbolism mm. here, you've got a lot of religious symbolism from the cross to the altar to the Bible. It's all Christian symbolism, right, in their understanding. But you've also got uh, race there because they're sort of glorifying and amplifying the confederacy and there were certainly no black people who were part of this group uh to rebirth mm. the clan and then you've also got this um perverted form of patriotism nationalism which is really xenophobic and um again focused on american-born citizen right and so right there you have this blend of race religion and uh, uh politics or nationalism and that is something that that we see with the clan and so Christianity is part and parcel of that, Christian nationalism. And that's something uh, that's an issue even to the present day. 
Could you touch a little bit on that? I was going to ask, you know, is that everything that you're describing, it sounds so, uh, it sounds so today. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> can you describe yep. some of the parallels that are there? Yeah. So um, the day before the presidential election, day or two, uh, the lieutenant governor of Idaho had a, a video ad and one segment of it pictured her in this big van that basically looked like an armored car. Uh, the van was draped with a huge American flag and she was in the driver's side slightly leaning out the window and in one hand she had a Bible and in the other hand she had a gun. Hmm. And if again, if we sort of dissect the symbolism here, the idea of, you know, what a true American is like is, um, you know, you're flag-waving American, but that's the American-born citizen part, right? Because it's not really in mind, the immigrant or the refugee experience. Um, It's a pro-Second Amendment, you can't take away our guns kind of mentality. And um, this, the, the whole thrust of the ad too was also against, you know, mask mandates. So like, personal freedom. The government's not going to tell me what to do. Mm. And then, of course, you have the Bible there. Like, what does the Bible have to do with any of this, really? And what they're saying is, you know, the subtext is uh, of Christian nationalism that, um, you know, to be a true American, you you have to be a a born-again evangelical Protestant, generally. Mm. They'll make common cause with other people like Catholics or mainliners as long as they're sufficiently conservative. But, um, yeah, but that symbolism of the flag, the gun, the Bible, it's its all there. It's all there. Um, so taking us to, to the present, you know, how does that affect, you know, African-American Christians, you know, from really being able to take ownership of their religion, but also there's this kind of mandate, uh, this uns- not necessarily unspoken, but like this sense that, oh, as Christians, cross-denomination, we're brothers and sisters in Christ and Christ unites us. And, you know, for us to be kind of in this united front, but when there's this kind of blatant racism happening in, under the name of Christ, I mean, how is that affecting the relationship uh, between uh, white evangelicals and African-Americans? And just even personally, what is that like for you in being a part of the body of Christ? So I think most white Christians will sort of say the right things. Um, all ground is level at the foot of the cross. Red and yellow, black and white, all are equal in God's sight. You know, those kinds of things, things that quite honestly, Martin Luther King would have called uh, pious irrelevancies and vain trivialities, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, 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 they're flowery words that sort of communicate the right things, but don't actually mean anything on the ground or in action. Um, and that's, that's a big issue because uh, if, if that's where it stops, then we got a problem because it doesn't actually approach the policies, the practices, the systems, the institutions that affect what we could say in Christian terms, human flourishing right? Mm -hmm. That's the reality is, if you're a person of African descent in this country in particular, but a person of color in general, there's all kinds of um, uh, ways that the way we do life in this country is not helpful, (laughs) is in fact quite harmful. And unless we're talking about those things, then um, we are going to have that, that Frederick Douglass kind of impression of Christianity. There is a 
Christianityism, as, as as some have called it, and there's the Christianity of Christ that that um, says I cannot love my neighbor and ignore the the forces or the systems or the policies that oppress them too. So uh, I think that's a word for for you know it cuts across racial and ethnic lines quite honestly, but um, for white Christians in particular is that we have to understand that race that that prejudice works itself out not just in people but in policies too mm. um and yeah. so how how does that you know on the ground you know on, in a like in a church so when there's a, another yet another killing of an unarmed black person and you're silent about it or you sort of gloss over it like black people and, and our allies we notice that and that silence is deafening um when the church leaders say, you know, we're, we're not political, we're not going to get into politics. Well, there's two things happening. Number one, it feels like you're ignoring really pressing and urgent issues for me because, you know, the Supreme Court overturning a key provision in the Voting Rights Act in 2013 has had mm -hmm. massive ramifications in terms of voter suppression, particularly for black and brown and poor people. That's a, that's a quote unquote political issue, but you're not political. So do you really care about the issues that affect me? The other thing that's happening is they are completely political. They're very political. They just don't say it in those terms. But if you think about particular policy issues, you could probably pinpoint exactly where your church leaders are because they communicate it in ways explicit and implicit. So there's no such thing as, as not being political because political simply means how we interact with one another. Um, what are the rules that govern how, how, how we interact with one another? Um, so, so those things affect us on the ground. And for me, it's been, um, you know, it's been a multi-year process, it really began in 2014, 2015, when Black Lives Matter became uh, part of the national discourse. Uh, and then I think it was accelerated for a lot of people in 2019-2020 um, election cycle, uh, where, where a lot of churches have just made clear what they're for and what they're against, and that has mm -hmm. forced people to, to make certain decisions about where they fit in in terms of Christian community. Please stay tuned for next week for our Christmas special as we take a deep dive into the cultural and political climate of the first century and the world that Jesus was stepping into. I hope this conversation has given you some tools to talk about race and racism in your church. You can follow our guest today, Jamar Tisby, on Twitter and Instagram at Jamar Tisby. I would highly recommend reading his book, The Color of Compromise, for a more in-depth look at this discussion. And you can pre-order his upcoming book, How to Fight Racism. If you're not already following us on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, be sure to do so at Advent Next. You can follow me at Kendra Arsenault with Next. If you have some topics you would like me to cover in weeks to come, please subscribe and leave a comment below. See you next week.